You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. Today, we have something a little different, not a traditional startup, rather a new holding company that's buying other companies. But they're doing this in a really interesting way because the holding company is owned by its employees. Chris Federick's founded Empowered Ventures and serves as president and CEO and member of the board of directors. In 2010, he proposed and led the acquisition of TVF on behalf of the employees. So not a management buyout, but an employee buyout using an employee stock ownership plan, which is referred to as an ESOP, which enabled a successful ownership transition for the founder. After overseeing a decade of success as an employee-owned company, Chris and TVF launched Empowered Ventures in 2020 to grow and diversify the ESOP through acquisition. Inspired by TVF's transformative employee ownership experience, Chris led Empowered Ventures to define its purpose, which is to perpetually create life-changing financial and personal well-being outcomes for its employee owners. We talk about the mission. He speaks to it very well. It's quite exciting. He's a graduate of Indiana University Bloomington's Kelly School of Business with a bachelor's degree in accounting. A former CPA, Chris started his career in public accounting in the nonprofit sector before joining the company in 2005, where he served in various positions, including chief financial officer and president from April 2010 through March 2021. We talk about the differences between a stock option plan and a worker ownership plan. We talk about the differences between a company being worker-owned and being worker-managed. And we talk about the differences between that and a co-op. We talk about how he leads with open book management and creates alignment among different leaders and the team in general. We talk about what it means for an owner to sell to a worker-owned company and what it means for the workers of the company that's purchased and a lot more. I think you'll enjoy it. So please stay tuned. Chris, welcome to Startups for Good. How are you? I'm doing very well, Miles. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, uh, excited to be here. So could you explain for our audience, what's the difference between an ESOP in the worker ownership sense versus an ISO or stock option plan? Yeah. So uh, an ESOP for in an employee ownership sense is a broad-based retirement plan where all the employees of a, of a company participate through like an annual allocation of shares as a, as a retirement benefit. So you could think of an ESOP as essentially a profit share retirement plan, you, you know, similar to a 401k, but instead of receiving the, the benefit in the form of, you know, contribution that goes into a mutual fund or however the employee chooses to invest, the actual benefit is in the form of company stock and many ESOPs, you know, own a majority or even all of a company versus, you know, a stock option plan is an area that I'm less familiar with. I mean, I know what it is, and it, but I'm sure your audience probably knows in more detail kind of how those work, but obviously that's more uh, common for kind of venture style startups and high growth startups. And uh, an ESOP is definitely more commonly used in say, traditional Main Street type businesses, established companies, uh, usually used as a form of succession planning for a, for an owner. For an employee, they're getting stock that's worth something today, 
Whereas when you get a stock option, you're going to have to pay at least a little bit for it. And it may never be worth something in the future, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So in, in an ESOP, the benefit itself is free. So it, a lot of times it's the main retirement benefit the employee receives. And as time goes on, as the company builds value and becomes worth more, it becomes a, a significant annual benefit that then you know grows over time. So what are the advantages to employees of this setup aside from yeah, getting an extra retirement benefit. Yeah. And I think in many companies that choose to go the ESOP route, you know, embracing employee ownership as an ethos and as key to the culture, you know, tends to create uh, an environment where employees benefit in many ways. You know, it's a, it tends to be a highly empowered kind of environment, a, a situation where employees uh, feel like their voice matters and leadership uh, approaches you know, the business in a way that everyone needs to contribute and has an opportunity to contribute to that value that's created. So ESOPs just tend to be, you know, a, a place where culture matters a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that ESOPs create environment for employees to grow and advance and find, you know, new ways to contribute to the company's success. So it's capturing some of the best of startup culture, in my opinion. It's saying you can have a piece of the upside and we're all on the team together to build this company together. Yeah, I've long, ever since I've been a part of an ESOP, which you know I led kind of the creation of an ESOP back in 2010, I've thought of it as relatively similar, like a cousin almost to you know startup culture and how uh, important all the employees are to the growth and the success of the business, and how there is a shared sense of reward, you know, as the the business creates value. Thought of them as similar, even though they're you know, kind of different universes, mostly, you know, commonly. So that's the advantage to employees generally. How about to a leader or someone like you who really helped create it? Yeah, I love leading in an employee-owned company. And I, I think of it as leading with tailwinds rather than headwinds. You know, in, in, a, in a normal business, privately owned, family owned, there's this kind of employee and owner relationship, which is, you know, normal. It's there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but embedded in that relationship are difference differences in terms of motivations or needs and, and interests. So in an employee-owned environment, when when a leader really embraces it uh, and that it becomes part of the culture, you know, interests can can really truly be aligned across the board since, you know, financially the employee can start to think like an owner and 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 it actually means something that they will benefit from every dollar the company you know saves or makes. They learn that and they get that over time, and and it starts to feel like you're no longer trying to convince the employee to to think like an owner. They just start to believe it, and that that level of support and tailwind, as I as I mentioned, the the leader can really start to feel that, and then you know it can just have an impact throughout the organization. So you're enjoying leading in this way. When you decided originally to create the ESOP, why not do a management-led buyout? Yeah, great question. So the founder of the business I was part of, I was CFO of a company, and the founder needed to transition the business. And he had a couple kind of failed management buyout attempts. And, you know, there a lot of times those, you know, come together or don't for for all kinds of different reasons. In this case, there just, you know, wasn't enough alignment across the the management team to lean in and buy the company. And so that those failed attempts led to some, 
the the founder being a little gun shy around going down that path again. And he he preferred a path that he had more, let's say, control over. An ESOP, uh, a seller uh, who chooses to go that route, can actually mostly control the outcome. There's some outside partners that come in in terms of uh, advisors that support the process. But with myself and the founder back then involved, you know, we were able to accomplish the ESOP transaction in private secretly uh, without anyone else knowing, which is actually normal. And then, you know, because there's no no need for the employees to invest or provide any, you know, they have, there's no risk for the employees. So it's not really a, a problem per se to go down that path, even though, you know, some, some companies will make it public that an ESOP is happening, but most wait until it's a done deal. So yeah, the, the management buyout attempt, you know, when it works, it work it can work really, you know, well and extremely well and be a great fit for some companies. But in our case, ESOP was a more doable process. So you mentioned you were working on a management team for this owner who wanted to do this ESOP. How do you think sellers should think about price on an initial conversion? Right. So ESOPs typically will be an arm's length uh, negotiation, which, you, th- you know, arm's length, how is that possible? And in an ESOP process, there's actually a trustee. So the the owner or the board of directors, assuming there's a board that's involved in a family-owned company, a uh, privately-owned company, they'll actually um, seek out a trustee who specializes in ESOP transactions. And this trustee will be the the other party that they negotiate the, the transaction with. And the trustee will hire a valuation advisor to essentially set a market value price uh, for the company. So ESOPs do transact at at a market value price. And there are a lot of ways the the transaction can get structured, including, you know, synthetic equity, earnouts, uh, you know, other other ways that as many, you know, creative ways that like a typical private equity transaction could get structured. A lot of those can be involved in an ESOP as well to ensure that the terms of this of the final sale actually are you know fair to the to the seller and also fit their unique needs. Aside from the higher transaction costs, why do you think more people don't convert to an ESO? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. So uh, in the U.S., around two hundred to two hundred fifty new ESOPs get created per year, which I think is you know on the small side. Even though it's a it's a great thing that that's even happening. It's the U.S. leads, you know, is one of the leaders in the world in the creation of these types of of plans. But there's some complexity involved. You know, this this trustee being involved, ESOPs being a retirement plan are regulated by the Department of Labor and the IRS. So you can imagine that for some sellers, there's some skepticism or some fear around uh, that level or that the potential involvement but there are best practices that are that are already well established that as long as those are followed there's almost no risk you know that the transaction could have any problems but i i do think that's one of the main reasons is that the fear of the complexity the other reason i'll mention is that i've heard is fairly common a lot of small business owners you know they they have a sense that their people are key and so critical to their company, but maybe they haven't identified someone or or a leadership team in the business that they believe can fully take over the leadership once they once they move on. And for an ESOP to be successful, there really does need to be you know a very clear uh, succession plan in place as far as the leadership itself goes. Do you think there's enough capital to support ESOP conversions? 
there, there's a lot of capital out there. There are actually many, many banks support ESOP conversions. There are investor groups and, and even you know institutional capital that's available. But I do think it's not well known that all that capital is out there and available. And it's almost a constant challenge for the ESOP advisor community to reach potential business sellers and help them understand the, the litany of options they actually have to access that capital. Uh, in addition, there are some growing uh, focuses, uh, like legislatively even, to support uh, additional capital uh, for the for the industry. So I think it's a it's it's available, but it's not easily apparent that it's always out there. The awareness is an issue as well. You're saying, yeah, awareness is really the big thing. If I do think if if business owners realized that this was a very viable option for them, many would would choose to to elect this ESOP path as opposed to sometimes even closing the business if they if they don't feel like there's a, a legitimate path for them to to sell the company. So yeah, I, I agree. Awareness is a is a key. Now, if you become a hundred percent employee owned company, you're basically taking equity off the table for growth in the future. Are you able to access enough capital to continue growing? Yeah. In the early years in a traditional ESOP transaction, capital could can be a little bit challenging. So there's kind of a, a the first few years that sometimes there's a seller note that needs to be paid off. But there are, you know, alternative financing partners out there that will come in and provide growth capital in exchange for, you know, kind of like a a mezzanine debt plus warrants approach, kind of a structured, you know, debt support. You know, support growth supportive capital. So this is again back to the awareness where a lot of ESOPs maybe um, go into a mode of just paying off debt in the early years and kind of shifting away from focusing on growth. But it is actually an option to remain very growth focused as an ESOP company if you're willing to tap the right kind of capital. So one of the things we were talking about before we started recording is, is this a story interesting to a Startups for Good audience? And part of what I was saying is that you're interested in growth and you have values ethos, which is part of what you're doing. And I would suggest you've had at least two founding moments. One is the original ESOP conversion and the second is the Empowered Ventures uh, founding moment. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that second one. Yeah. So we founded Empowered Ventures in 2020 and we're really excited. And when we do view this as a, a growth you know, project, we founded Empowered Ventures, which is our holding company, to grow through acquisition. So we're seeking to build a diversified ESOP holding company. And we we have grand ambitions for it, even though we're in the early stages. So we want to build a, a large, you know, employee-owned conglomerate, essentially. And I think there's a huge opportunity for us and, and there's a few other folks out there doing something relatively similar. And it kind of gets to your point about uh, the complexity of ESOPs and the lack of awareness. And you know what we're able to do is come in as a, a already successful ESOP in a corporate structure and grow through acquisition, which solves a problem for many of those potential uh, business sellers. They don't have to worry about the complexity of the ESOP. This is a more what we're bringing is more of a private equity style transaction, simpler in many cases cash up front in many cases rather than seller notes. And we think there's a huge addressable market for a business like ours to grow and, and solve a problem that, that we see 
with regards to, you know, succession needs for the the business owners that are out there, the silver tsunami that a lot of people mention and tens of thousands of businesses that need to transition and, you know, a desire on many business owners part to transition their company in a way that they're proud of, that will help the culture be sustained over the long term, will continue to enable the business to have the impact in the community that it has and ultimately be you know great for both employees and customers and i think there's some skepticism out there amongst you know business owners around some of the traditional options you know be it private equity or uh, selling to you know into competition or uh, strategic and we feel like there's a, a niche uh, for us to fill where they can kind of have their cake and, and eat it too get full value out of the business cash uh, for for the value that they've created but ultimately feel really good and proud about who the long-term owners of the business are going to be because it's their employees. And are you essentially promising to keep the business intact? Yeah. So our, our commitment to sellers is that we intend to hold for the long-term and we intend to support their leadership team to continue to build the business the right way. You know, whatever's best for that business with a long-term mentality is what we're excited to support we find that that is a, a message that resonates really well with business owners. In order to be successful as employee-owned, you will make some changes to the culture in terms of sharing more information, I imagine. Yeah. So what we do, and, and you're right, we we expect and want there to be an alignment around the kind of culture that employee ownership can can support and create. And so that's key for us in the early discussions, you know, with a potential seller, um, just to make sure that there will be an excitement around that kind of culture and that sharing information and and treating employees as owners is going to be a welcome part of that business's evolution and maturation going forward. And how do you train employees on thinking like an owner, understanding the information you're sharing, all of those changes? Yeah, that's, you know, the education piece is so, so important. And there's a lot of ways around it or, or to to you know address that that challenge a common approach in within the esop kind of company community is to form a communication committee uh, so this is a group of peers who are particularly interested in the esop and and how it works and they they're kind of like early true believers and to empower that group to to understand and then you know communicate am among the rest of the the team uh, how the ESOP works, you know, why, why, why they should stick around and, and see, you know, what's going to happen with this ESOP, what the potential is, answer questions, you know, really organize activities, educational activities, celebration activities. So it's a long-term process. It takes many years, but engaging the the support of their peers, we have found to be a, a terrific way to support that education process. In addition is just, and this is common for all, I think, you know, leaders and, and founders is to over-index on communication. Just, you know, be willing to be very transparent around the vision, uh, how we're going to get there, uh, what we're looking for from everybody and just over-communicate, which, you know, we we have, to like everybody, we can always do more and, and better at that uh, too. And then I guess lastly, I'll add that with an ESOP, everyone receives an annual statement so it shows their you know their latest additional shares that they've been they've received 
um, the latest share price. So the business is valued annually. Um, and they receive this share statement every year. And that typically is a way that, uh, an, let's say an employee who is new to the ESOP, their first few statements that they receive, that's when the aha moment usually clicks in that, oh, wow, this, they're actually, they meant what they said, like I'm receiving a really meaningful benefit here. And it's exciting, you know, to see because these typically, at least in our case, in many ESOP cases, it can be a, a surprisingly powerful, you know, number uh, and motivating number. So uh, we find that that kind of solidifies the education as that happens. Are there any types of cultures or employee backgrounds or work styles that you find don't mix well with employee ownership? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Like anything, when you know when we when we've come in and said you know this is we're an ESOP, this is the opportunity. There are folks who are skeptical and some of those skeptical folks will end up being the the biggest fans ultimately once they kind of get over the fear of being let down. I think a lot of employees have a fear of of trusting and being let down ultimately. And so in some cases you it's you get surprised that some employees who were skeptical really become such big fans and then in other cases you know there are folks who think this is too good to be true and maybe just uh, aren't comfortable ultimately in an environment where everybody's voices matter and they maybe have a perception that their voice should matter a lot more than than other people or you know maybe a type a performer who prefers you know to maximize their own value versus kind of a team oriented approach i do think ultimately it takes uh, people who value teamwork and succeeding as a team far more than like winning in an individual sense within in a, it, within the, the company itself. So team oriented is best. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, a much shorter, uh, better, better answer that being team oriented is, you know, the right fit for an employee ownership culture. Is there any information that employees can't see? Uh, yeah. So each company, each, any employee owned company uh, can decide the leadership and the, and the governance structure, which is a board of directors that oversees the leadership team. There's a lot of leeway to decide kind of what level of detail uh, to go into uh, in, in terms of what information to share. I would say it's common practice to share, to have a, a, a light open book management approach, which is, you know, to share key financial performance type numbers and and key insights into the business in terms of KPIs. And in some cases, some ESOPs go extremely open book, but I wouldn't say it's the most common approach to go full on extreme open book management. And the only thing that's actually required by the Department of Labor and IRS regulations is to share like the plan document type stuff that how the plan itself is governed and the annual statement of shares uh, essentially is are the only requirements of information for the employees. Now you mentioned the board and the government structure. And that's something I've been curious about is how is board dynamics different in an employee-owned company? Yeah. I would say there it depends. So the way the board works, I think of it as a public company light kind of governance model where most ESOPs or or I'd say many ESOPs will select some external board members who bring, you know, particularly uh, useful skill sets to the board and then end up having kind of a majority external 
board with maybe a one or two members of management. Some ESOPs will choose to have more of an internally focused and driven board where internal management members are the majority. I think that's the biggest distinction. You know, if the boards that have a majority external tend to be truly governance boards where the focus is on the way a public company would kind of the performance from a, a high level, the CEO, CEO's performance and succession leadership, succession planning, compensation strategies for the, the executive team. So that's, I think from when it's an external board, that tends to be kind of the approach versus an internally managed board probably shifts more into a, more of a management meeting kind of leadership approach, unless they're extremely careful to uh, create a true governance mindset among among the board members. Now, you had to get board buy-in when you decided to start Empowered Ventures and this acquisition strategy, right? Correct. How did you do that? I mean, you had this idea we could grow, but it's really going to transform the business. It's a big decision. It was. It was a very big decision. And, you know, I'd had some conversations with them, you know, for a few years leading up about whether this is a path we would be interested in going down. But ultimately, I think it the selling point for the board was it was two things. One, we were succeeding a, a lot in, as an employee-owned company. We were generating m- meaningful financial resources that that we would eventually need to figure out. You know, what are we going to do with the, these resources? We're, we probably don't want to just let it sit in cash. You know, for the long term. So, you know, how we actually invest became a big question uh, at that at that stage of our life cycle. And then, you know, the other piece is kind of what are, what do we think we're unique and what can we bring to the table that can add value? And we had spent a fair amount of time in the years leading up on potential of growing through acquisition within the, the industry, the textile industry that our core business, you know, was in. And we had been successful, one small add on, but we weren't, I would say we weren't finding a tremendous amount of exciting uh, opportunities to grow through acquisition. And just doing research around kind of what the real opportunity set might be out there, we got really, really excited that there's this unmet need, that there's a lot of small, you know, small to medium sized businesses that would absolutely love to sell to an ownership group, an employee owned company that would steward their business and also give us the benefit of diversification. The selling point of there's a real market need we need to invest our resources uh, somehow and we can benefit our employees by diversifying their retirement accounts over the long term that that kind of combination of factors led the board to feel very supportive and, and ultimately very excited about this path that that um, we discussed and and decided to go down you know there's this cliche i don't know where it comes from that more than half of acquisitions fail to return financially mm-hmm. How how do you think about how often you'll be successful, how often you need to be successful, how you manage that risk? Yeah, it's a terrific question. From a, a success perspective, you know, we we are quite conservative. So first off, we're not levering up to do significantly to do acquisitions. And I think that's probably if I had to guess, not having done all the research, you know, to be certain. Uh, I would think that that levering up, which is a common, you know, practice in the private equity world to do acquisitions, 
and then failing to meet, you know, the required growth performance. I think that's, that is one way we mitigate the risk of underperforming is by just coming in with a, a pretty conservative, you know, viewpoint. The other big factor that I've heard, you know, I think many of us have probably heard leads to these kind of failed acquisition situations is the people and the culture and the impact that this transaction uh, ultimately has on the company. I've definitely heard horror stories. I'm sure you have as well around, you know, a transaction happening and then, you know, key people kind of leaving the business, key customers, key people, and, and there's nothing left. So, you know, for us, what we have found, and again, back to why we're so excited about this path, when we come in as the buyer and we're announcing that, Hey, you know, you, you're employees of an employee owned holding company and you, you just joined our ESOP. You are now an employee owner as of today on closing day. We have found that that resonates a lot better and there still is some initial skepticism, but we have not had any kind of exodus with people when, when this happens. And then we're confident that over time they will, they'll get the value and they'll fully buy in. So I think those two things coming in with a relatively conservative you know, uh, leverage and financial model and, you know, our employee ownership uh, program. I think those are, are how we're the bet we're making uh, that we can be successful far often, far more often than not with our acquisitions. You were talking about the employees hearing about the transaction after it's closed on day one, mm-hmm. which can be really scary for some people. They can feel left out and they can assume that someone's losing their job because that's what everyone worries about after an acquisition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would. It's terrifying, right, to come in and and learn about this big thing that's happening. And and we everyone has heard, you know, of all the layoffs that can happen when companies merge. You know, financial engineering kind of is one of the drivers of a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions. And we're very clear up front that this is not about that nothing actually is going to change in the near term at all. And over the long term, the only thing that's going to change is that the culture will become, you know, more and more employee owned oriented and the leaders of the company will continue to grow and evolve the business based on the needs of its people and, and the market opportunity that it has. So that's key. When, when we come in, we're, we're sharing with them that this exciting news has happened but we're also not taking over. You know, no one from Empowered Ventures is showing up to start running the company. We will have be, gotten a very clear sense working with the seller on what the leadership approach is going to be, and that's announced too in conjunction with the transaction. So it's still normal for the employees to feel fearful and uncertain because, like you said, there's this is happening and they didn't know about it, and that that's intimidating all by itself. But fairly quickly, we where we hear and we you know it's what we hoped would happen. The employees settle in and, and they see that nothing is actually changing, uh, other than good things usually. How often do employee-owned companies do layoffs? Less than their counterparts. So there's actually some pretty uh, great data available out there. Um, studies that have been done during the different you know recessions over the last twenty years, a few decades, and. The studies have shown that employee-owned companies on the whole lay off far, far fewer employees during downturns than their counterparts. And that's that's a big selling point, you know, from our perspective and uh, for sellers that there, it does create this sense of we're all in this together and 
it, it helps you know navigate those storms uh, a lot more successfully. I'm curious who inspires you, like which businesses or business leaders call forth the best or give you reason to keep going? Well, that's, yeah, that's, I love that question. There's so many, really any leaders that I, that are bringing kind of a, as you're doing kind of a, a business is more than profit kind of perspective. Of course, profit matters, but you know, ultimately business has impact way beyond, way beyond profit. So, you know, I think about like Benioff at Salesforce, it's Benioff, I'm going to forget. Mm-hmm. I'm, it's not my world. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think about how he leads and the way he talks and I've definitely paid attention to them over the years. And I also, even though Buffett is such a, such a huge personality for, for everyone now, but I think that his way of thinking and his way of, of talking about people really has always been super inspirational to me. Say more about that. Yeah. When he talks about the leadership teams of the companies that they uh, invest in for the long term, it is 100% about character. And I I almost just feel this this sense of his humility that who who would he be to think that he knows better, you know, than these leaders of these, these companies that have been have built this great business and that he wants to invest in and support. It's that I guess it's that humility, ultimately, that he the aw shucks, but it seems to be so real that he brings to to his relationships, and and that really is an ethos for us. That when we're when we're interacting with these businesses that we're fortunate to be, you know, stewarding for the long term, I have no preconception that I'm the one that's going to be, you know, bringing all the right answers. This is that we we practice what we preach in terms of how we want our leaders to treat their employees. We treat our leaders also with uh, that kind of empowerment as well. And I think Buffett, just the way he always talks about his, his, the people he chooses to work with definitely, you know, helped crystallize that way of thinking for me. He all got to start in textiles. Yes. I've joked about that with some folks that maybe in my grandest dreams, this is the second, you know, textile holding company that, you know, becomes one of the, the biggest companies in the world, but I would, I would definitely settle for far less success than, than they have had with the impact we're bringing on employees. Yeah. Any amount of growth and success we have is going to be, I'm going to be really happy about, but yeah, I think that would, that would be quite an irony if somehow we, we also became the, a, a successful textile based holding company. Buffett talks a lot about character. I agree with you. I think he's probably better known for capital allocation decisions mm-hmm. and, teaching people through his shareholder letters how to think about those. Is that an important part of your strategy? Um, in terms of capital allocation, I think we're in the, it will be eventually. I mean, we're we're probably too early. It, it's a key thing that we have to think about all the time, but we're in a fortunate position that when good opportunities arise that, that fit our profile, you know, both from a returns perspective, but and also all the other critically important you know, orientations or, or requirements we're looking for in a business that we're able to pull the trigger. So, you know, in the future, when we have a lot more companies and, you know, maybe some, some competition for our capital internally and externally, you know, we'll, we'll have to continue to hone in on and refine our, our capital allocation methodology. We're just, we're lucky right now that we we're able to tap the capital we need to, to grow. 
Sounds like your business has been going great. Are there any particular big challenges you've had to overcome? I mean, all the challenges we're faced with are, I would say, common to everyone. You know, the people challenge is real, even in an employee-owned environment. We always want to make sure, you know, we're supporting our people and, and understanding their needs. And people are messy and I'm messy. And so, you know, just the, the challenges of getting aligned and on the same page and clear and staying on the same page. Because we're early in building our model, we've definitely had plenty of learning opportunities, you know, maybe some miscommunications or misunderstandings here and there. And we're, we're ironing out those details. And I'm excited because we have a, all of our leaders are very excited and supported about what we're doing. So we don't have any like full on misalignments, but it's about ultimately creating systems and approaches that are scalable for us too. And when you're, I think when we're trying to create those systems and those you know, that scalable approach that can lead to shortcutting or sending the wrong signals. So I think, you know, in terms of how to grow significantly with in a scalable way, that's where there, it can create some challenges in terms of communication and staying aligned with some of our people. So there's been a lot of learnings around that. Anything you can share more specifically about your approach to staying aligned? Yeah, I think it's really a, a question of what how many touches. So we're with us being, let's say a hands-off holding company, the presidents and the leadership teams of the businesses we work with, they are running the day-to-day -day of their company. And our approach is to support them and, you know, not be in their business too much. And at the same time, you know, we care a lot about their, them and their business and, and how it, how it's going to go over the long term, And it's tempting, right? If, if they have a problem, there's been situations where maybe they're trying to address a problem or they have a, a solution in mind to a particular problem that they're sharing with us, which is a gift for them to share. You know, here's something I'm, I'm struggling with and I'm, here's what I think I'm going to do about it. It's very hard to, and to, and, and tempting, it's hard to stay in the back seat. And it's tempting to give advice. And I think for the model we're building, it's super important that we lean into the discomfort of staying in that backseat and supporting them, letting them grow, grow through making decisions. They're probably right, ultimately. You know, that's back to the way Buffett is thinking that I may have some fears around a particular direction, but they are the ones there in the day to day. And I know for me personally, it's always, it's been a long, you know, career goal, or it's been a, a learning, a constant learning to continually learn how to let go and trust and, and lean into that. And that, that's definitely, you know, the, the path we're, we're finding we need to go down to build this in a way that's sustainable and, and exciting for our leaders too. You're talking about a certain level of delegation to leadership, but I don't think you're talking about self-management or employee managed organization where everyone is, or there's no hierarchy or a very different type of hierarchy. So I think sometimes employee ownership is confused with, with that sort of self or employee management. Yeah, that is a common misconception. And back to your point earlier about, or your question about why maybe more ESOPs aren't created. I do think there are a lot of founder, seller, potential business sellers out there who think of employee ownership as exactly as you stated it, that it's, that there's a lack of hierarchy and that all of a sudden we're a democracy now is one way I've heard it put. 
And it does, definitely doesn't have to be the case. Uh, usually ESOPs function with a similar amount of hierarchy and structure more so than hierarchy even, but, but clear leadership structure is helpful and supportive, you know, for a business. And there are some types of employee ownership. It's almost a, a, a spectrum where maybe worker co-ops on the one hand, which we're, we haven't really been talking about, but there's a, another model that's, of, that's the worker co-op. And that is probably more of a, a democracy kind of style of, of employee ownership, whereas ESOPs tend to, uh, on the whole, adopt a more structured you know, leadership model that is still far more empowering, ideally, for all the employees than you know, maybe a typical privately owned company, hopefully. So you can be worker owned, which is who owns the company. And then there's the way you run the company. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you have to use holacracy or some kind of system where everyone's making all the decisions. And it also doesn't mean you have to have a co-op, as you were saying, where there's one worker, one vote, one share, where it's all the same thing and closer to how we think about democracy. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think for me, it's, it's a bat, a matter of what's the best fit for a particular company and its culture and its people. And I like, I like, I do want to, it's, it's, I think it's helpful for me anyway, that we continually challenge ourselves to not lean into structure to solve problems that, you know, communication and, and alignment around vision and, and, and things like that is a better ultimately way to motivate and support uh, people and the growth of the business. Leaning into structure and, and hierarchy, I think it can send the wrong signals, you know, in an employee-owned environment. So it's important, but maybe the lightest amount possible is the way I think about it in terms of an ideal perspective. When you think ahead and the kind of success that you want to have, you kind of joked a comparison to Berkshire Hathaway, but more realistically, are you wanting to get as big as possible? I think we want to have the largest impact we can have. And I think scale and growth is a way we can do that, that I'm very excited about. So I wouldn't go so far as to say as big as possible, but maybe, and maybe on the other hand, I would. In my wildest dreams, this this skit grows to be something that uh, is an institution that is large and and has an enormous impact on on people. Uh, our our mission, our purpose at Empowered Ventures is to create life changing financial and personal well being outcomes for all our employee owners because we believe that you know has a tremendous benefit both to the employees but also to their families and then potentially you know communities and and generations beyond. So we truly believe in our mission, and the bigger we can get the more people will be impacting so in that sense i i would love to say yes it's as big as possible on the other hand i think you know having a goal of big as big as possible can become a goal in and of itself that could detract ultimately from the right decisions we need to make and you know optimizing for our current employee owners so there's a bit of a balance there and and ultimately i i want to build the healthiest organization that we can build to create the outcomes we're intending to create for for our current and future employee owners. When you talk about that personal impact, how do you know when you've been successful with that? Yeah, it's such a great, there's so many ways to think about kind of the impact personally on people, health, wellness, 
happiness, satisfaction, engagement. There's a lot of ways to try to measure it. I've settled on just a simple uh, question, which is, you know, do you look forward to coming to work? If someone is enthusiastically saying yes, they look forward to coming to work, then I feel like that's a terrific, you know, win. Um, since so much of work, we all probably had different jobs where work can turn into drudgery or even have like a really negative impact on our life from a stress level and you know, other other ways. So if someone is actually looking forward to coming to work, I think that's that's a that's like the simple answer to whether we're having that the overall impact we want to have. We do use kind of EMPS, EMPS to measure that. So employee net promoter score. And so from a, an actual tactical perspective, if, if we're kind of having a really strong EMPS score in each of our companies, then, then I think on the whole, we, we believe we're having the impact we want to have. It's an exciting vision to have a meaningful financial and personal impact on all the employee owners. Thank you for sharing it with us. Well, Miles, thank you for having me on it. This has been such a joy and really appreciate you giving me this chance to share some of our story. Yes, appreciate you coming on. Take care. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today, and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.